What's happening? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. This is episode eight of the Matt Bernier Show for Monday, March the 30th, 2020. However you're listening to this thing, thank you for doing so. You have YouTube, you have iTunes, you have SoundCloud, you have all the places you get your podcasts. You also have InTheMoneyPodcast.com if you are someone that just listens to it from an audio-only perspective. Those of you over on YouTube, make sure you click the subscribe button to the folks over at In The Money Media. Make sure the bell icon is lit up while you're also over on YouTube. Go to my YouTube channel, Matt Bernier. Please subscribe to that. Make sure the bell icon's lit up. You get anything that either In The Money or myself have to offer as far as uploads are concerned and as far as the other podcast situations are concerned apple podcasts you name it please rate review and subscribe always always appreciated thumbs up as well um just kind of helps the entire thing as far as today's show is concerned going to go over the graded stakes races from gulfstream park on saturday afternoon florida derby day then we'll roll into the pick history as well as the q a there are enough graded stakes races. This show might be a little bit tighter and a little bit shorter than some of the ones in recent weeks. Uh, I know I said I was going to go over the three-year-old Phillies, some of the under-the-radar ones this week. Given the the landscape and the way that things look like they could be progressing for the next few weeks, I wanted to kind of keep that in the back pocket, knowing that I, I don't know what is running as far as graded stakes racing is concerned this upcoming weekend or racing period. So, in all likelihood, next Monday will be when I go through and start talking about some of the under-the-radar three-year-old fillies, and then also just start probably transitioning into some more broad topics that we can all just spitball back and forth on, maybe some opinion-based things, you know, top X lists of whatever, uh, derbies, oaks races, you name it, a bunch of just more sort of ballroom talk kind of topics as opposed to the nuts and bolts handicapping of what happened the weekend prior or, or things of that nature. Just because, again, right now it looks like things are a little bit on the the uncertain side about how much longer we're going to go on. And and even if things do continue, what the, the stakes quality kind of action from a weekend may look like. So um, that's what's a little bit kind of on the radar anyway to come. So the three-year-old fillies that are under the radar, we'll probably wait until next week uh, to start diving into them. This week, though, we'll kick things off with the big one, the grade one Florida Derby down at Gulfstream on Saturday. They had 14 races run on Saturday afternoon. A number of really good races, a ton of really impressive performances, in my opinion. This one was one of the most impressive, and I'm sure some folks would argue the most impressive uh, from Tis the Law. Going into the race, I just... The more and more I looked at it, I wanted to try to get cute and use some of the horses that I've brought up in the past that I'm interested in and I respect. I just thought Tis the Law was going to be too much horse. In fact, that's how it played out. He wins by more than four lengths, geared down at the end. The speed figures come back very, very respectable. A 96 buyer and a 119 raw time form US rating. Time form US, if you're someone that you use this sort of pace adjusted number, it's actually faster. It's a 121. So a little bit of a discrepancy between the buyer numbers and the time form US numbers. I'm going to lean a little bit more toward the time form US numbers here. The interesting thing about the card itself on the main track, and I know I, I noticed it when we were finishing up uh, the live stream I did with the folks over at America's Best Racing on Saturday for the race. I saw the final time and for a mile and an eighth, 150 flat. That doesn't really knock your socks off. But when, and I, I tried to say it as well as I could at that point about without going into the weeds. 
150 at face value didn't sound all that fast, but it was all relative to how the track itself was playing. And you go back and look at the charts and you look at some of the other final times on the main track, the dirt seemed to be playing on the, the slower side overall. So I think that's part of the reason that maybe the, the number, as far as the raw time was concerned, didn't look all that spectacular, but the speed figures have come back well. Again, track variants and all sorts of different things. We, I, I've talked about speed figures in the past. No need to really go too far down that road again. But the, the point is the track was playing relatively slow on Saturday. It looks that way. And based on the figures that have come back, I would imagine that the variant obviously is factored into that. And they're looking at it saying, you know what? The track was a little bit on the slower side. That doesn't mean that the horses didn't run X, Y, and Z based on par and all those sort of things. So uh, tis the law. I thought it was a really impressive effort at no point. At no point did he look like a loser in the race. And that's another piece for me when I look at horses that could end up being something or, you know, have shown potential. Do you ever really look like you're in deep water? And even with his only loss to date in that race down at Churchill, I mean, he he didn't have a good trip that day. But in all the other races that he's run, at no point did I really look at him and think, Oh, he's he's in trouble, you know, with the exception of some traffic issues. I mean, every time he's had the opportunity to go, he's just decimated fields. And and the races really haven't been all that close. He's, he's done everything you could possibly ask for from a horse at this point in his career. Beautiful ride from Manny Franco. Just perched him out in the clear and said, we're on the best horse. I'm not concerned about it. And when he gave him a little bit of a, a push going into the far turn, the horse came right to him. And I just, it was... I just thought all around it was a really, really top-notch performance. And if you're looking at the three-year-old males right now, I think you have to look at him and say he's right there at the top of the list or close to it. You know, maybe he doesn't have some of the figures that a horse like a charlatan or a Nadal or an authentic, you know, any of the West Coast runners do. But at the same time, if you want to make that case, he's not that far off. Um, And frankly, from what I've seen in, in this sort of, the, the agility he's shown, the ability to overcome a little bit of adversity, the ability to ship and win at different tracks and run well at different tracks given different situations and circumstances, um, I could make the argument that Tis the Law has proven more than anyone else at this point as far as the three-year-olds are concerned. Um, it's a shame for the connections that the Derby is not going to be run in five weeks' time. Now you need to sort of work backwards, say, okay, we, we have a horse that, at this point in the season anyway is very clearly one of the best. How do we have him at whatever his best may be the first Saturday in September? How do we get to that point? What does that kind of campaign look like? Do you put him away for a few months now? Or do you just keep keep the ball rolling and say, well, we've got a sharp horse. You know, the Derby is still the goal, but it's still so far away that so much can happen between now and then. I'm I'm just spitballing. I haven't read anything about what Barkley Tag and company are thinking of, but you know, there's a part of me that wonders. He's already a stallion now. Okay, he he won the the Grade One Champagne as a two year old uh, at a one turn mile. He's won the Grade One Florida Derby. I mean, do you just do you say we've got a sharp horse right now? Maybe we get let's get one more race out of him. Let's go to Arkansas. Let's go to let's go to Hot Springs and we'll run him down at Oaklawn for a race like the Arkansas Derby. We'll get that one under our belt. That's the first Saturday in May. And then maybe you put them away at that point until July. Give them, give them the rest of May off. Give them June off. Bring them back. I don't know if it's at Saratoga or it's at Monmouth or somewhere. And, and plan sort of a two or three race campaign. 
a two race leading into the Derby or a race leading into the Derby, something along those lines. I, again, I, I'm just throwing throwing stuff against the wall and seeing what sticks. I That would be my thought, though, at this point. Do you really want to put a horse like this away right now, knowing that you put him away, I guess, what, what does it hurt to run him back one more time? This race, I don't think, took anything out of him. It doesn't look like it did. I mean, he, he went out there and just blitzed the field. Maybe you try him and try to get another grade one to his name because it, it, there's also that part too that look we all everybody wants to win the Kentucky Derby especially with three year olds and yada yada yada. If you can build enough of a resume early on in the season, and let's say that this Triple Crown ends up being a little bit disjointed, which it looks like it's going to be, you know who who's to say that you okay you have the Holy Bull, the Grade One Florida Derby, the Grade One Arkansas Derby. I know I'm getting ahead of myself saying you know if you were to go and win, but that's already two grade ones by the first Saturday in May. Theoretically, if he stays healthy and sound and happy, you're probably going to pad that resume at some point over the summer leading into the Derby. I don't know. It's just something I would be considering if I had a horse like this where, I, you know, do I want to put him away right now where even if we run one more time, and it's not like it's chump change. I know they may have uh, cut the purse a little bit, but it's still a grade one, still a prestigious race. Do you run there, then you put him away for the remainder of May. Maybe you get him in the light training, middle of June, start cranking him up for return effort in, let's say, mid-July. Then maybe you have the, maybe if, if they choose to move the Travers to, to early August or they choose to move one of these other races, the Haskell or something like that, you run that and then you run, you have a horse ready to go for the first Saturday in September for the Kentucky Derby. Again, it's a good problem to have. It's a really good problem to have. I think Tis the Law is the absolute goods here. As far as the rest of the field is concerned, I know folks looked at it and said, well, how good could the race have been if Chivalry at 80 to 1 runs second? That kind of sort of plays into my feelings of the main track on Saturday. I'm of the opinion that the main track was slightly speed friendly. And I, I know there are going to be some people that immediately go, well, how could you say that? There were other races where horses came from way out of it, way out of it. If if a pace scenario is so destructive, it doesn't matter what the bias situation is. If it's if it's almost to the point where there was no way you would continue or could continue, then I, I don't. Unless the track is an absolute conveyor belt, which I'm not suggesting it was, but I do think it was advantageous to be on the lead. I think you needed to be, if not outright on the lead, you needed to be pretty darn close to it within a length or two to really have a, I think an optimal chance. To, to win or run your race. If you were coming from much farther back, I didn't think you had much of a chance, again, unless there was a destructive pace like we saw in the Hell's Hope, which I'll talk about in a little bit. So tis the law. He took he kind of took advantage of that, but he's already proven that he's a, a handy horse and can adapt to different situations. Chivalry, I think, is a horse that, that played into his hooves, that the track, in my opinion, if it was a little bit on the, the uh, speed-friendly side, a little bit kind of horses that can be forwardly placed, then he maybe that's part of the reason that he stuck around as long as he did. But keep in mind, it's not like Chivalry's a bum. You know, they tried to stretch him out here. Uh, this is, the I think, the second time in his career. I don't think this is what he is. I think he's probably a nice middle-distance horse, but circumstances presented themselves, and he ran a bang-up race. And look, the Connections now have a graded stakes-placed runner on their hands. Ete Indian... Uh, you know, I would have loved to have seen Florent and Giroux be a little bit more aggressive down the backside, but at the same time, that kind of plays into the idea of, 
well, we're going to be able to put Chivalry away at any point. We're just a better horse than he is. Well, I guess with the track playing the way that it did, at least again, in my estimation, it didn't quite work out that way. Um, Ete Indian, I think, is a horse at this point in his career that for him to win at a level like this, he needs to be on the lead. That doesn't mean that he can't continue to develop. That doesn't mean that that things won't change over time. But right now, if he were to, if he's to be considered a legitimate threat in these kind of races, I think he needs to be the one that's out there cutting out the fractions. Just my opinion. Uh, Governor Morris, a horse that I've been high on for a long time, you know, he was the one of the top four finishers that came from the farthest back, and he never looked all that good on the racetrack, frankly. Um, Velasquez was really pumping on him, you know, down the backside to try to stay in reasonable range at the front end. I think part of that was because Johnny V probably recognized, I, I can't win from coming from this far back. I thought he showed enough in his finish that makes me think that he can still improve and still continue to to get better and be a threat. But, I mean, there was a part of me, I'd be lying if I said I expected... Well, part of the reason I didn't pick him coming into the race was the way that I laid it out with that little video that I did for ABR. That I just, I, I didn't love the workout that he had had two back and the horse that he worked with, Silver Ratio, who came back and ran third again on the undercard on Saturday, third or fourth, something like that. Um, I just, it, it, I didn't think he was necessarily coming into it the way that I would hope that he would. Um, and not necessarily that he wasn't, not that he wasn't, training well but I just given the company that he was keeping in the workouts and the way that he looked I just thought well maybe he's not going to be able to run with a horse like Tis the Law uh, in fact no one was but I did see enough at the end the way that he finished that to me suggested perhaps getting to a bit of a let's say fairer racetrack with some added ground maybe Governor Morris is a horse that can continue to improve I will sit here right now and say as of March 30th I expected more from him at this point. Let's say when I first put out my top five and I had him number one, what was that, probably five, six weeks ago. I, I expected to see a bigger move forward here on Saturday. He didn't run poorly, and if you're someone like me who has some future action on him, I'm certainly not jumping off the bandwagon. But I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed in what we've seen here in this race. I thought I still liked the, the route, the path that they chose with him through Tampa. I just, I, I expected and I hoped for a little bit more than we saw. I don't think it was terrible. Still would have liked to have seen some more. Only other horse in this race that I'll touch on is Independence Hall. To me, everything that I was afraid of kind of transpired and played out with him. I, I felt like when the real running started, he came up gasping for air. Um, I just don't think he's, I think he's a one-turn horse. I think that's what he's going to be best at, you know, Um from a talent standpoint, it's there. I just don't. I don't know that he's going to be the kind of horse that will be as good. He won't be at his best, in my opinion, going longer. He'll be at his best at seven eighths of a mile. His best at at a one turn eight furlong kind of race. So I'm uh, not again not questioning his talent. I just don't think you're going to see the best version of him in races like this. The horse that you will see the best version of in races like this is Tis the Law. He's the leading light on the East Coast. And you could make the case that he's the leading light as far as all three-year-olds are concerned, 
given his track record, where he's run, he's shown that he can ship, he's shown that he can win in a number of different running styles, in a number of different conditions. Um, I think the connections have to be very, very thrilled, and this is a horse I'm very high on. Very interested to see what we get from him the remainder of his three-year-old campaign, tis the law. Let's crank out the two turf races that preceded the Florida Derby. That's how this whole thing will go. I'll go in reverse chronological order. Races 13 and 12. Race 13 was the Appleton going a mile on the grass. Uh, hot, hot pace featured. No surprise. A horse like Social Paranoia, fittingly enough, uh, aptly named given everything that's gone on recently. Uh, takes advantage, comes from dead last. The pace is wicked in there, is able to come and just roll over the top of everyone and gets the job done at a nice 6-1 to one price. Another winner for Florent Giroux as far as the graded stakes were concerned on Saturday. At 100 buyer speed figure, 117 raw time form US rating. It was a dream setup, but this is a horse that's always shown ability. So it's kind of one of those difficult positions where you look at it and say, yes, you did have the run of the race. There's really no arguing that. But at the same time, I know that you are a capable and talented horse in your own right and you can still perform well even when things don't go don't fall into your lap the way that they did here on Saturday so social paranoia I don't want to take too much away from him um, despite the fact that things did play out very very well for him very advantageously he's a good horse I'd expect better things from him as we continue on you know that he can also stretch out a little bit in distance this was at a mile mile obviously not an issue for him he can run well at nine furlongs Maybe you can push him to 10, but I think you're starting to get a little bit wary at that point. These eight and nine furlong races, I think, should work well for him. Uh, Sombaye, another Pletcher horse, runs another bang-up race. He's relatively close to the pace, so for him to only be defeated by a length and a quarter, I think that speaks volumes to where he is right now as far as the race horse is concerned. And I know Pletcher typically... Um, you know, he's had some good turf horses over the years, don't get me wrong, but I feel like everyone just immediately associates the three-year-olds with him, uh, the derby type of horses. He's he's recently put together some nice turf runners that are just, they keep going along. And I mean, a, a horse like Sombaye, who initially seemed like a three-year-old dirt type, as he continues to age and progress, they moved him over to the turf and he's, I don't want to say found new life, he's... He's a legit miler. He can be up there. He can take the lead if it's given to him, or he can be foreign enough to try to get the jump on the closers. And unfortunately for him, this is just one of those days where you take a look at the top four finishers. Uh, let's say th at three quarters into the race, Social Paranoia is in 12th, March to the Arches in 6th, Hembry's in 10th, Sombaye's in 3rd, and he's only a length off the pace, a length and a half off the pace. So, I mean, he did a lot of running in a spot like this. Good effort from him. He stays in good form. March to the Arch, a fine effort. I feel like this is kind of what he is. Sometimes he'll be able to get the job done. From a number standpoint, this seems like it was a little bit of a regression compared to some of his other races, but... Um, I don't think it was any sort of monster disappointment. I feel like you expect a decent enough run from him uh, each and every time he goes out. I don't think he's a superstar. Uh, no, I don't think anybody ever claimed him to be one. But um, it's just, you know, he'll show up with his race. Sometimes it's good enough. Sometimes it's not. Hembry, another one who I feel like took advantage of the pace situation, the pace scenario. You run this with a little bit of a more pedestrian pace early on. I don't think he kicks on. Dr. Edgar, I thought, ran really well given his proximity to the pace. Um, he actually cleared off to the front, but then when you had uh, El Tormented make that giant brush down the backside, you had Maraud, who was forwardly placed. Um, I actually thought it was an interesting move from Paco Lopez to sort of relinquish that position. And in hindsight, it, it actually offered Dr. Edgar his best opportunity to win, to allow those other ones to actually go out there rounding the far turn when I actually thought he was dropping anchor. 
Instead, he rallies again and finds a little bit extra and just can't quite hang on for that final eighth of a mile. All in all, not a bad effort from him either. I would take a look at him again wherever he should show up, uh, perhaps against a little bit lesser. Uh, but Dr. Edgar, I still think he can run. Uh, Maraud, the problem with Maraud is he just doesn't change leads anymore. Um, and he was up there on a wicked pace. So, you know, he's another one that you want to upgrade his result because of the pace dynamics and where he was positioned throughout the run. Um, outside of that, I don't really have much to add for many of these horses. Um, you know, El Tormenta, just draw a line through it. I mean, look, breaking from the far outside, pace situation was wicked, made that big brush, first start in a number of months. That's not going to work for him at any point. So, you know, all in all, fine effort from from the, the winner, Social Paranoia. We know he's a good horse, and I would expect him to continue on as... For the other horses I mentioned, I think in certain circumstances, they could take advantage of B players. Let's move on to race number 12, the Pan American. All eyes were on Zulu Alpha coming into this, the winner of the Pegasus World Cup, uh, the winner of his most recent run. If it wasn't the Pan American, it was... doesn't matter. He won another race. Uh, look, actually, I can pull it up. I'll pull up a chart just so I can be... The McDermott, the MACD. Um, he ran that race and won it rather impressively. I know admission office went with him, but they both looked really, really impressive. And in this race here on Saturday, I, he, he just loses by a neck. And I wonder, I wonder if Tyler Gaffleone could do it again, if he would wait a little bit longer to push the button, because it, it's a, it was a decisive move from Zulu Alpha. Where And this is two races in a row where Tyler's been able to make these sort of early runs beginning before they get into the far turn. In this case, for the third time, the third turn. He makes this giant move down the backside out in the clear. And look, for Zulu Alpha to only lose by a neck, I think that just goes to show the kind of form that this horse is in. And he continues to just really be feeling good. But I wonder, let's just say, theoretically, Tyler could have waited an extra, I'm not asking for a lot. If he, if he could have waited an extra eighth of a mile, and then he asks for that, do you still have a little bit extra, and maybe that's the difference in the neck? Um, the horse didn't run badly at all. He loses nothing in defeat, in my opinion. Depending on what figures you want to look at, first things first, Bema's boy wins the race uh, for Mike Maker. The numbers don't necessarily jive here and it's not a giant discrepancy but it is enough of a discrepancy for you as the handicapper that you need to make some calls and, and all I'll do right now is try to try to offer up some some of the differences here as my camera blocks one of the monitors from a number standpoint I've brought up the 20 point differential between the buyers and the raw time form ratings Bema's boy earns a 98 buyer and a 124 raw time form US rating Simple enough, you take 20 from the 124, that should put you around a 104 buyer. Uh, if you add 20 to the 98, that should put you around a 118 time form US rating. So there's about a six point differential in those numbers. It, it's, a, it's a tough call because the buyers, if you want to say that Bema's boy runs a career best 98, which is not out of the realm of possibility, that means Zulu Alpha regressed pretty significantly, nearly 10 points from a 107 to a 98 here this afternoon or on Saturday. His run three starts back in the Pegasus here into 106. Prior to that, he had been on a run of one, two, three, four, five consecutive 100 plus buyers. Then he came back with a 106. Then he came back with a 107. Is it possible that Zulu Alpha regressed to a 98? Certainly possible. 
I think the other thing that th- sort of throws a, a fly into the ointment is Current showing up with the big effort that he did. Oh, he, he gave me gave me a thrill. I thought he was going to get the job done there for a minute at 37 to 1. But I, m- my logic is the 97, maybe that's even faster than, than what the buyer associates have, have awarded him simply because I think this is the first time Current was really allowed to do what he wanted to do. And perhaps Bemma's boy, I know, maybe it's a little bit of a stretch. Could he really possibly have jumped up from a 96 to a 104? I, I mean, is it totally implausible? No. Is it unlikely? Perhaps. So maybe the 98 is where you want to land on that. My point is, I don't think Zulu Alpha really ran all that much different than he has in the past handful of races, yet the number would, from a buyer standpoint would suggest he regressed pretty significantly. From a time form standpoint, in his most recent run here, and pace, I'll use the pace adjusted for this one. Uh, the last three runs from him, including this run on Saturday, three back in the Pegasus World Cup, a 128 pace adjusted. Most recently, I'm sorry, in the, uh, yeah, that was the Pegasus World Cup. The most recent run prior to this was the McDermott here into 128, and then the Pan American here on Saturday here into 124. If we take a look at it from a pace adjusted, uh, a non pace adjusted standpoint, a 128 raw number, okay, that came in the McDermott in the most recent start prior to this one on Saturday. That checks out well with the 107 buyer speed figure. And then you go back and you take a look at the unadjusted number from the Pegasus World Cup here into 125. And that's a 106 buyer. That's about right. So either. Zulu Alpha didn't actually regress, and the buyer number is too slow, or he did regress, which again is feasible given the horses in and around him, they would have needed to jump up pretty dramatically in order to to make it seem like Zulu Alpha actually ran a 104 or 103 kind of buyer. But I see some of the other numbers in here. Channel Cat with a little bit of a tardy break. He still comes with a decent run in 95. Is it totally implausible or impossible that he actually ran, let's say, five points faster? In this instance, let's say seven points faster. Because Timeform US gave him a 122 raw number. Buyer gave him a 95. If you want to take the 20 from the 122, that'll give you a 102 buyer. He's run a number of triple-digit buyers in his career. So it's entirely possible to me, and, and kind of the way that I'm going to lean, I think the buyers for this race are a little bit light. So that's a feather in the cap of Bemma's boy, of current, uh, of all the horses. I think the buyer numbers are a little bit on the light side. That's the stance I'll take. We won't know until they come back and start running back. But I think it's something for you as a handicapper to file away, and you need to make a decision. Which ones do you think are slightly more accurate in this instance? Because it may not seem like much, but boy, all of a sudden, if a horse like current actually ran... With his early speed that he shows, if he actually ran something closer to a 103 or a 104, he's probably going to be overlooked in whatever his next race is when other horses that traditionally and historically are up up above that triple-digit number. Maybe you get a little bit of value there. Or if you are someone that believes that the buyer number is accurate, maybe there's that opportunity where you look at it and say, you know what? The time form users, those people, they're going to look at it and say, oh, this horse is actually faster than it looks when it's not really the case. Again, that's you for the as the handicapper. You need to make that call. My opinion, the time form U.S. ratings for this race are a little bit more accurate than the ones for the buyers. That's just my call for this race, and do that what we will. We can't find out until they come back and start running to uh, sort of compare and contrast what the numbers coming out of the race look like. All in all, 
Good effort from Bemba's boy. Beautiful trip. Another good ride from Giroux. I mean, look, uh, Flo is really just, it seems like he's on his game right now for these past two or three months. Anything he touches turns to gold. Um, he just rolls along, and, and Mike Maker is the the king of taking those horses and stretching them out, and they turn into something different. And, and I mean, that's what we're looking at here. Uh, this horse ran really well in that most recent run in the, the race at Sam Houston. And, you know, I, I, I wonder if too many people looked at it. And look, I didn't like the horse, so I'm not trying to go back and say, oh, well, we should have done this, that, and the other thing. You know, Marzo, the third place finisher in that run at Sam Houston in the John B. Connolly, he came back and ran quite well, earned a 120 pace adjusted time form US rating in his next start. Dot Matrix for Brad Cox, who won that Connolly, he had a disastrous start at the fairgrounds. So he's not really indicative. It's, it's tough to use him as sort of the barometer of whether that, that field was any good to come back. The fourth place finisher, he returned with a 108 pace adjusted number. Um, so look, it's it's the beauty of handicapping. You can be right and you can be wrong. Uh, we're all going to be right and wrong in different instances. But this is going to be an interesting race, I think, going forward to take a look at and see what people want to do with it. Do you think one number is a little bit higher? Do you think one number is a little bit low? Um, and just from a race standpoint, I still think Zulu Alpha ran the best race I just think it might have been a little bit of a premature move from Tyler Gaffleon. It happens. It's not the end of the world. but um, and, and really, for this division, I'll be interested to see where everyone goes from here because the the upcoming schedule with the loss of the Keeneland meeting, Belmont Park tentatively scheduled to open up uh, at the end of April. Until then, I don't know where your long-distance turf runners are going to go. Uh, I don't know what Gulfstream has, but I mean, we, we've kind of moved out of their their graded stakes, major graded stakes time. Um, you wonder, maybe maybe these horses are going to get a little bit of a break here. Um, we'll see in time. Let's breeze through the last three graded stakes races. The Gulfstream Oaks, Swiss Skydiver wins, Gates of Wire fashion. This is another one. Pace makes the race, and if you are in agreement with me, where it helped to be forward, I mean, no one from the back had any chance in this race. Swiss Skydiver goes, and she doesn't go all that fast, which is what was driving me up a wall because I loved Lake Avenue in here. And I just, I don't know how she's not on the lead in a spot like this. Rosario takes her back, got got her under a stranglehold in between horses, rounding the first turn. Meanwhile, Swiss Skydiver's out there. Uh, the fractions were 24 and 149 flat for a half, 13 and one for three quarters. And she's got plenty left in the tank when it's all said and done. I mean, that... You, you you combine a speed-friendly main track with no speed, no one's going to run you down. Don't care how many times you run the race. She earns a 90 buyer and a 106 raw time form rating. So she is one, to me, I'm downgrading tremendously. I can say that really about all of the horses that are forwardly placed in this race. And I know I'm probably going to sound like an idiot. I still believe in Lake Avenue. I hated that she popped to her left lead for the final 16th of a mile. I liked that she started to make up some ground rounding the far turn. I just thought she got a bad ride, plain and simple. I thought she was the one that should have been out there on the front. She wasn't hustled out of there. I still don't know why I'd like that. I'm just curious about that. But, hey, look, it is what it is. No use in crying over spilt milk. I made it abundantly clear in the Pick 6 video that I put out on my YouTube channel, Matt Bernier. Again, please subscribe. That I just I hated the Devona Dale as a whole. I, I just didn't think I didn't want anybody coming out of it. The only two horses that I wanted were Lake Avenue and Lucrezia. Lucrezia ran just fine. Um, you know, I, I don't think there was a tremendous excuse. She was relatively close to Swiss Skydiver throughout, and she just couldn't quite kick on when that other filly did. But I can't sit here in, in good conscience and good faith and say that I was necessarily right about the assessment of the Devona Dale. 
while the result would suggest that I was right, those Phillies didn't have any chance with the way that this race was run. I still don't like them. I don't like Spices Nice. I don't like Tonal Shape. I don't like any of the other Phillies coming out of it. But at the same time, I can't use the Gulfstream Oaks and say, oh, well, see, I was right. Hmm. Maybe I was, but you would be sort of lying to yourself if you didn't look at it and say, well, they're trying to rally into no pace on a track that is very difficult to make up ground. I, I can't just throw the blanket statement out there that I was right about this. I, I, I'm still dubious about them overall, but this isn't the race that you really should be using as the barometer about whether they're good or not. Um, this race as a whole, I don't know what you want to do with it going forward. The Orchid, uh, really like this filly. I think Mean Mary is is the goods for Grand Motion. Uh, she's another one. She gets out there. She's going to 24 you to death. 24, 24, 24. And the good news is she's still got a little bit left when the rider asks her to go. Um, she wasn't setting a slow pace out there. I mean, it wasn't, they weren't setting land speed records by any means, but it's not like she was just, you know, loping along. She herself was, but the fractions would suggest that they were going an honest enough pace. And I know it, there wasn't a ton of running from the back of the pack. So if you want to use that against sort of as, as, a, as a knock, but I'd also suggest you take a look at the odds of the top four finishers. I mean, they were, they were the four choices in the race, essentially. Even money five to one, four to one, five to one. So not a total stunner that that's kind of how this thing shook down. But Mean Mary looks awesome on the track. And I talk about body language a lot. I may end up putting out a video this week about it. You watch her the first entire lap. Her ears are straight up and she's just galloping. She's just galloping along. She almost trampled two geese that walked out into the track. That's that's the geese problem. I can't, I'm not going to blame the horse or anybody else for that. The geese, by now, you got to know. Got to know animals a heck of a lot bigger than you are going to be running by. Probably don't go under that rail. Stay, to the, stay in the lake. Anyway. I digress. I think Mean Mary is the goods. She That running style with a little bit of... She doesn't have to have the lead. She's super dangerous on the lead. But she can sit just off as well. I did a little bit of research earlier. I couldn't find anything. I know it's really early. Um, I, I w- It wouldn't surprise me if she ended up being a Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare player. I, I think she's that good. I may be going a little bit overboard. I may be a little bit bullish, but... I think she just is just starting to scratch the surface of her ability, and we know Grand Motion can win Breeders' Cup races with the best of them. I, I think she's really, really good. Um, she earned a 97 buyer and a raw 117 time form US rating. I think she's only going to improve from here. Uh, very, very high on Mean Mary. I thought this was a really impressive effort. If you're looking for a horse that never had a chance to run Kelsey's Cross, and the only reason I know is because I had my eyes glued on her for the majority of the run because I bet her. Um, you know, maybe she wouldn't kick, but she legitimately never had a chance. She was just stuck down on the inside at the back of the pack, and and Giroux never really, you know, by the time she found some sort of running room, what's the point in, in asking her to run? You're, you're not, you're not going to get a piece of this thing, so just wrap up on her and, and wait to fight another day. Uh, but me and Mary, I think, I really do. I, I'll be curious. I'm, I, what do you all think? On Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt, or beneath the video player on YouTube. I, it's, it's the end of March. I get it. The landscape looks, who knows what it looks like. But I, I think Mean Mary could be a Breeders' Cup Philly and Mare type of, of runner when it's all said and done. We'll see. Just my opinion. Uh, the House Hope, the last one that we'll touch on earlier in the day. This is the race that people 
who want to say the that my idea of the track being speed friendly is wrong, this is the race that they're going to use as their fuel. Because your winner, your second place finisher, and your fourth place finisher, and your fifth place finisher, and your third, uh, sixth, and seventh, and eighth all came from way out of it. And anybody that was close to the pace of the exceptional one horse, um, they were up the track. If the pace is just supersonic, I don't care what the bias is. Horses are still animals, and they're still going to get tired. And this is, to me, this race is case in point. The The pace collapsed because they went unbelievably fast early. And again, if you just look at the, the numbers, the fractions by themselves, and at this point in the day, maybe you're not really in tune with the idea that the track is playing very, very slow. You're going to look at a half and 47 and one, three quarters and 11. Yeah, three quarters and 11 is, is a pretty honest pace. But when you see that the track is yielding times that are as slow as they are for the throughout the day, that's actually going crazy, crazy fast. Time, Timeform US, they, they, they show the race fractions and then they show adjusted fractions, factoring in how the track is playing and things like that. If, if you, I don't typically look at the adjusted fractions, but I was curious for this race. By the way, all the fractions are color-coded red. The half mile, the raw number is 47.24. Timeform US's adjusted half mile is 45.77. The three-quarter split of 111.04 is adjusted for Timeform US to 109.94. I mean, they're booking it on the front end. And that's why I put out the tweet on Monday afternoon, and some people have responded, and they say, this doesn't make any sense. That's why I said Bodie Express, to me, had the best performance on the main track all day at Gulfstream, and he finished third, beaten by a length and a half, because anyone that was remotely close to that pace is still running, and he was in with the chance. He was exhausted at the end of the race. How, I mean, you, how can you blame him for going that fast, pushing the pace? I mean, look, it was a bit of a curious ride, if we're going to be honest. If, if you if you think that the horse that's out there, and I believe it was a big, big number that was out there cutting out the fractions... If you think that you're you're the horse to beat, you're two to one, and I get it. He's going to be overbet in every race that he runs in because of the fanfare that he has. But that doesn't mean he's not a good horse. That he doesn't have some ability. Look, I get frustrated with his antics as, as much as anyone, but there's ability there, and for him to run the way that he did in this race, th- this is as good as you're going to see in a losing effort. I mean, he he did all the work, all the work. And he gets a minor award for it. And I just, I wonder what, uh, you know, what the plan for a horse like this will be going forward. Where do you want to run him? Do you try to turn him back to one turn in a mile? Do you try to run him at seven eighths? Do you want to keep going at a mile and an eighth? I don't think the distance is, is actually a problem for him. I know a lot of people disagree with that. Uh, I just, this race, for him to run and finish where he did, given the way the race was run and the relation and the, the the spacing between he and anyone else that was close to the pace, they're a hundred out of it. And he was still in with a chance down the lane. So I, Bodie Express, he's the only one I want out of the race. The rest of the horses, you can have them. I, I don't think it was a, a great race with any of the other horses. But my goodness, Bodie Express, what a performance, in my opinion, anyway. And I'd be curious what all of you have to say about that. So that'll wrap up the graded stakes piece here. Any other horses that you're interested in that I didn't mention? Any other horses that ran at Gulfstream on Saturday? I know there were other stakes races. I know there were some nice optional uh, claiming races. If, if you have 
questions about any of those, let me know beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. I can go back. I'll respond to you individually, that kind of thing. But just for this show, I figured let's just go over the graded stakes and we'll move on. And in this instance, we will move on to the pick history in this week's Q&A. All right, here we go. Let's wrap up episode eight with the updated pick history as well as a Q&A segment. The sample size now is up to 66 for the pick history. Uh, from a win standpoint, at 18%, the ROI is $1.82 from a $2 sort of base. So down, uh, what is that? About 9% overall. Uh, if my math is correct. Yeah. 9%, uh, wagered $132 returned $120 60 cents overall down $11 40 cents. So the ROI has come up. The win percentage is still in the ballpark. Um, it still should come up, uh, based on what I'm expecting based on past history. So, um, I mean, really, at the end of the day, the, the ROI is the only thing that matters. But I still would prefer to see, obviously, the ROI above $2 because that's essentially the break even. Uh, but also the win rate to come back up into that sort of 23% range. And, and I still see no reason why that shouldn't be the case. Uh, win play show, 47%. That, this number is still lacking much more than than I would like it to. This should be around 55% when it's all said and done, 56%. $1.68 ROI. So that is down, uh, I have it here in the spreadsheet, that would be down 16% overall, uh, $396 wagered, $331 returned to you uh, for a total of minus $65. So the ROI is always probably going to be a little bit lighter on the win play show side of things. Uh, the win percentage, though, should be higher, and I would even say should be about 10% higher. So I'm still looking at it saying work to do for both of them, no question about it. Um, as I said last week, though, I'm not drawing major conclusions until that sample size gets up to around 100. That's when I think you have a fair amount of, of data to really start drawing conclusions from. So still a ways to go for that, but uh, a fair enough weekend this past weekend. La Signari got a win. Uh, Highland Glory got a win. Belgrano got a win on Thursday. Uh, Bourbon Resolution ran well from the back of the pack. I thought that was a solid effort. I think he'll move forward, especially given the way the track played. Uh, Kelsey's Cross, I made mention, never really thought she got much of a chance. Like Avenue, didn't love the ride. She got a piece. Current, you know, look, that's those are the kind of horses that I'm always going to be. Those are the ones that have me coming back. The 37, 38, the one shot that you, you doped out on paper, you liked him and said, you know what? I, I think this horse makes sense in here. And he almost gets the job done. He loses by uh, less than, you know, call it a half length, um, paid 1040 to show. So, you know, obviously that helps things a little bit, but uh, that number would have been dramatically increased had he got his nose down for a second and obviously had he won. So uh, Dr. Edgar got nothing there and then, Tis the law. He gets the job done in the Florida Derby. So there's the updated pick history. Let's go to the Q&A. And as I said last week, uh, really for these next few weeks, uh, as much interaction as I can get from you guys, um, the, the easiest spot is beneath the video player on YouTube for this sort of segment. On Twitter, I, I'm more than willing to have people go back and forth. Again, it's at Bernie or underscore Matt. It's just... Uh, questions and comments can get lost in the shuffle because there's just so much crap that shows up in there. And, and I say crap... You know what I'm saying. Just anybody that has that follows a bunch of people and has does a number of different things, 
it, things just go very, very quickly. So at least on YouTube, I know where things lie. So if you have a question, a comment, horses, things of that nature, your best bet initially is probably YouTube, but don't be afraid to fire away over on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Make sure you follow along. This question comes from Jim Pilars. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. Uh, Jim was commenting through his daughter's YouTube account, but Jim made it clear. This is his question. Uh, Do you have a favorite track to handicap? If yes, for what reason? Uh, Maybe the same or related question, but it seems that you keep extensive records on your selections. So is there a track where you have a higher selection percentage? So first things first, thanks for the question, Jim. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Uh, my favorite track to handicap. It, it's a difficult call because I think the whole, I think the track that I have the best feel for, that I I feel like I could just pull out a card any given day and I haven't watched racing there in months and still feel pretty damn confident that I'm gonna know what the track is doing is Santa Anita over the past few years. Um, I, just two turn races. If you are not on the lead or pushing it, you pretty much have no chance. Um, you know, six furlong races, speed helps, no question about it. The turf can can play towards speed a little bit as well. I just, I feel like I have a really good grasp of that. The problem with Santa Anita, and it's part of the reason that I haven't had many, and this answers part of your question, um, most of my data so far for these, for this pick history, has come from Gulfstream. I have a little bit of Oak, uh, Oaklawn in there. I've got a very little bit of Santa Anita in there. Got, you know, some fairgrounds, some Tampa, a little Laurel even. But the vast majority is Gulfstream, and that's predominantly because there are there have been larger fields, better wagering opportunities, more horses at fair prices or decent prices that I'm intrigued enough with to go. Whereas at Santa Anita, I hate to say it, but I mean, I'm not breaking any news. You're dealing with a lot of six-horse fields and a lot of seven-horse fields. And, you know, and, and again, with the uncertainty of everything that's gone on recently, rather than put a ton of time into going through a card like that, I'll go through a card that I'm pretty confident they're going to run, that I'm going to get probably at least eight horses in each race, if not more. You know, uh, the turf race is typically north of 10, and that's the main reason that I've been Gulfstream for now. So Santa Anita is the, the, the track that I just feel like I could just open up the PPs one day and, and not skip a beat. I think my favorite track to handicap and my favorite track to watch races at is Belmont Park. Um, I love Saratoga. It's, you know, I I love Keeneland. I love so many different places, but Belmont Park, because there's so many different variations of racing, not only is the main track bigger than any main track you're ever going to see. So the races are a little bit different in that aspect, but you know, with two turf courses and the different, the two turf courses being larger than most of the other ones that you get to see at any given time, with the exception of tracks like Woodbine and, and things like that, you know, it just the, the styles of races are, are so much different. You've got horses, you've got a one turn, one and a half turn mile on the grass coming from the Widener, I believe. Is it the Widener or is that it? Is the Widener at Saratoga or, or Belmont? This is when you have technology. Yeah, okay, all right. All right. The Widener is inside, then you have the outer turf course. I'm making sure I'm not losing my mind, guys. We've been inside for a long time, making sure that I'm not giving you stupid information here. But the idea of, you know, the, the Widener, you, you break on that sort of turn. The Widener's the outer course, I believe. Um, 
you know, and it's like a one and a half turn kind of race where I think that fits certain horses better than others, but at least it's it's an added wrinkle to the handicapping puzzle. You know, you get the inner turf races at a mile and a sixteenth or whatever the case may be. There's just there's so many different or mile and a quarter. You know, there's so many different configurations. The one turn mile and an eighth on the main track. You know, I I love watching racing from there and I love handicapping it because it is such a different it's just a different dynamic than what you get basically anywhere else. Um, just purely from watching races, yeah, I mean, I, I love, I'll always love Saratoga. It's always going to be probably number one for me in the United States just because it means so much. It's It was the closest track that I grew up to. It was, you know, uh, I've been there with all of my friends and, and had so many good times there. But, you know, it's it's a bear to handicap because you have horses coming from everywhere um, the weather, I think that's another thing for me with, at least with Santa Anita, the, I think there is a major benefit if you're someone that you can only play, you know, X amount of times and maybe you do a little bit of homework, a little bit of work in advance to get a feel for track profile and how, how tracks are playing and things like that. One of the advantages of Southern California, yes, your fields may not be giant, but Boy, for the most part, you're going to get good weather. And that's the difficult thing with New York or Florida or really anywhere else outside of Southern California is that, you know, you could do all this work and especially Saratoga because Saratoga's thunderstorms can come and go in a matter of 10 minutes and it can dump God knows how much rain on you and and everything is just completely changed. They're off the grass. The main track is a disaster, you know, just so you can almost feel like, oh, I did all this for for what? At least with Southern California, it's essentially climate control. I know it gets hot in the in the sort of late summer time, and and they do have the the wet season, you know, at the early portion of of the the calendar. But I just I think that's another thing for folks that don't get to play a ton. You know, at least Southern California becomes a little bit more of a consistent day to day piece as far as the track is playing. The fields may not be big. You may lack some wagering opportunities. But for that part, that's pretty consistent. Whereas other jurisdictions, maybe you get bigger fields, more competitive races, but you have more variables to factor in the weather and and all that kind of stuff. So, um, and as we keep going, I mean, once you know, knock on wood, things get back to normal. But now with the main meet at Gulfstream closing up shop, I, I believe I read somewhere on Twitter the the fields at Tampa on Wednesday are massive. Like every every race is averaging eleven horses or something wild like that. So Tampa is is a, I've always maintained I love betting Tampa. I've been terrible there this year for 2020 so far, but I still love Tampa. It's a great spot to to get down with some action. Um, and then when we get to back to Belmont, I mean that's definitely going to be a spot that I'll have I'll have plenty of uh, attention given. So um, anyone else's thoughts, questions? You know what what is what is your favorite track? Where do you like to handicap? The, are you someone that specializes on one circuit, which to me, if, and I know I, I could technically do this, but if you can just focus on one circuit and you know that thing inside and out, like the back of your hand, I think long-term you're better off than dabbling all over the place. Um, it just, because it's very difficult to have that amount of bandwidth to be able to handle staying on top of so many different circuits if, if you're, you know, if you're really trying to go deep into things. But if you're just a weekend warrior and you play on Saturday, I, I totally respect it and get it. I mean, I, 
I still fall into that as well, you know, where and there are a number of times where I don't really want to play on a Thursday or a Friday. You know, I've got other stuff going on and, you know, I, the big stakes races are on, on Saturdays and Sundays. And I feel like those are more, not formful, but they're at least the horses, the quality of the horses running in those races are typically, they're more reliable to deliver a performance that they're accustomed to as opposed to maybe some of the lower claimers. But on the flip side, you need those lower level claimers to have any kind of game. So I see I see all sides of the, the coin. I understand uh, anybody that is a day-to-day just grinder or if you're somebody that only plays on big days or only plays on Saturdays or whatever the case may be. But to you, what tracks do you like to play? Do you keep records? I think record keeping is very, very important. I'd be curious how some of you do that, if you do that at all. And if you don't, maybe it's an exercise you want to start trying to kind of factor in or play into your work. Um, yeah, and just let me know. Piggyback more on this topic. Again, questions, comments, concerns, beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Need them now more than ever, given the uncertainty of the racing landscape. I've got other creative ideas that we can throw out there for the first part portion of the shows. Still need this Q&A, though, going back and forth with all of you, the viewers and the listeners. Uh, if you are watching on YouTube, thank you. Please subscribe to the In The Money Media page. Please subscribe to my page, my personal page, Matt Bernier. Make sure the bell icon is lit up. All the videos that go up uh, be greatly appreciated if you gave a thumbs up. Or if you don't like it, give it a thumbs down. But just give it one of the two. That's all I ask. Um, if you're on Twitter, follow me at Bernier underscore Matt. I tweet out a bunch of silly things. I tweet out horse racing stuff, sports stuff, hopefully when we get back going. Um Feel free to subscribe over there and, and drop me a line as well. Um, until next Monday when I come back, we'll see what the racing situations look like. We'll see what else is going on. But at the very least, we'll go over the underrated three-year-old fillies at this time of year. And hopefully we'll continue on with some Q&A and some pick history. So until next Monday, this has been Episode 8 of the Revamped Matt Bernier Show. Episode 9 comes up next week. Until then, best of luck, however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play.